Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. We all know that famous scene from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Where the monster Dr. Frankenstein dreamed up becomes more powerful than its creator. And that's sort of how a lot of us viewed artificial intelligence. Part awe, part skepticism, and part fear. Our reticence does make sense. All of the ways artificial intelligence could disrupt our lives, not to mention the sentience of robots, is more complicated in reality than fiction. But just because AI is complex, fast-moving, and not fully regulated, doesn't mean it's not a technological advancement we shouldn't be rooting for. Because as risky as it is to try to get AI right, it might be more detrimental to society in the long run if we continue to compartmentalize it and try to keep it at arm's length. Simply, it might be time for us all to reconsider the monster. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tirani, and this is American Metamorphosis. I don't like to talk about ranking myself or anything, but I hold the record for most World Poker Tour titles with four most final tables, most caches. So um, I would put myself among the top players in the world. My name is Darren Elias, and I'm a professional poker player. How did you get into poker in general? I started playing cards with my family growing up real young um, with my grandmother and immediate family. And when I was like 15 or 16, there was this big poker boom because of the World Series of Poker, an amateur one for the first time, this guy named Chris Moneymaker in 2002. Wait, what was his name? Chris Moneymaker. Is that his actual name? (laughs) His real name was Moneymaker. It's like, okay... It was like an accountant from Tennessee, and he won. So there was this kind of sentiment, oh, anybody can win the World Series of Poker. And uh, I think when he won, there were 500 players in the event, and the next year there was like 7,000. Darren plays a specific kind of poker, No Limit Texas Hold'em, a two-card game with five community cards. He finds most of his success as a live tournament player. But three years ago, he played against an online player that gave him a run for his money folks at Carnegie Mellon had built a poker AI and it played a a format of hold'em just one-on-one heads up. And they ran an experiment where it played some top human players and you could watch it. And and I was into it. And I I thought that was interesting. I've always had a budding interest in AI. And uh, a couple years later, they developed this pluribus, which when they reached out to me to be a part of the experiment, I, I, I leapt at it right away. I was excited. What was the most exciting aspect to you? It's exciting to me because it's, I get to play a computer that has no human touch on its strategy, where it has only learned how to play by playing itself. So when, when you play against humans, they're all kind of playing a similar strategy. And it's a little like sheep, where if one good player does something, a lot of other ones follow it. And we, we don't know if it's actually right in theory in a, in a vacuum until recently, where computers have been able to kind of confirm our strategies. So to be able to play against this, like, it's almost like an alien 
competitor um, was really exciting to me. And I thought maybe I could pick some things up from the strategy it was playing to use for myself in later games versus humans. At first, Pluribus didn't threaten Darren's elite status all that much. Like any first-time player, the bot had a pretty steep learning curve. When I first started playing, it was pretty weak. We were kind of doing back and forth, almost like bug fixing with the team. Like, oh, it, on the river, it bluffs entirely too much and just goes all in. It, it can't play like this. And then they would fiddle with something, but it would come back stronger. And then eventually it got, it got to a point, and this was all happened pretty quickly within like a week or two where it went from playing poorly to playing like an elite top-level human player where it was as good as me or better. So just to kind of clarify then, so it took you something like 18 years to become this elite-level player, and it took Pluribus how long? About two weeks, I would say. I, I was shocked too that I kind of imagined I was playing against this like giant supercomputer. And then I, I find out later when we're talking with the team, it was run on like a laptop, like two or three hundred dollars worth of equipment. The crazy thing as well, Darren, is it sounds like you kind of helped it get good, right? Like it was playing against you for the first couple of weeks. So in theory, it was like a sort of souped up version of yourself beating you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a, it's a humbling experience. For me, it's something I, I've devoted my life to poker for 15 years. Um, I'm, co- I'm usually confident playing against human opponents and just to get to get beat by a by a machine is very cold experience. What do you mean by that, cold? Whenever I play with humans, you can almost, even when you play online, you can feel like a back and forth momentum or how fast they're clicking the buttons. There's some emotion, even at the highest level in poker. And maybe maybe you have a feel if you're winning, you're starting to, to break their confidence or something like that. With a machine, it, it's just playing its own strategy. It's, it's mathematics, it's probability, and, and nothing I do is going to affect its play. So when, when you're losing to that strategy, it, it feels crushing. You're listening to American Metamorphosis. a podcast partnership between Atlantic WeThink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we've been looking at disruption as a force for good, a tool to address the many crises we seem to be facing today, from the lack of sustainability in our food and housing systems to rising inflation. Solving each one requires innovative thinking and coordinated action, Perhaps most importantly, responding to these crises will require transforming our perspective and understanding of risk. The fear of the unknown may keep us from moving forward, but fearing a monster doesn't stop it from growing stronger or more powerful. Sometimes the best path forward is to shine a light on the thing that scares us. Look squarely at it and use that monster for its muscle. I was trained as an economist, not as a computer scientist. And so I I came to AI like any normal person who's seen 2001, where you approach AI with this fear of Hal telling you, I'm I'm sorry, sorry, Dave, I can't open the capsule door. I think we both understand why. I'm afraid I can't do that. 
My name is Jens Ludwig. I am a professor at the University of Chicago and the director here of a research center called the University of Chicago Crime Lab. What's your background with working with artificial intelligence? So um, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, we started this research center here at the University of Chicago called the Crime Lab that was set up to try and have uh, social science research have uh, impact out in the world rather than just sit in journals uh, on a shelf. And we started to see that our partners were coming to us and telling us that they really needed help with policy problems that hinged on a prediction that's currently made by a human being, which naturally leads to a conversation around whether we can use um, data tools like artificial intelligence to help make that decision better by making the underlying prediction more accurately. Jens and his team were tasked with making human predictions with human consequences less, well, human. And they started with domestic violence cases in the courtroom. The law says the judge has to make a decision about whether the defendant gets to go home awaiting trial or has to sit in jail uh, awaiting resolution of their case based on a prediction of the likelihood that the defendant is going to uh, recidivate. And right now the judge makes that prediction entirely in their head. So we give the judge a set of paper files on what the person has been charged with and what criminal record they have. And we hope that the judge can do some sort of statistical magic in their head. We know from a large body of behavioral science that um, human beings are not very good at that sort of statistical prediction. We're just not very good at, at that sort of pattern recognition. That judge's decision, says Jens, is informed by those papers, but it's also influenced by biases that might be unconscious, such as the defendant's skin color, the clothes he or she is wearing, and more. But the emotional pattern recognition can weigh just as heavily as the statistical pattern recognition, which is why Jens and his team input the essentials, a defendant's age and criminal record, into the artificial intelligence in order to more clearly see all of the ways that the judges might be making their decisions. In contrast, if you tried to solve that problem with artificial intelligence, what you would do is you would specify what the thing is that you want the AI statistical model to predict. You would say, the law says the judge is supposed to make this decision based on a prediction of recidivism risk. The outcome I want to predict from the data is the likelihood that this person is going to commit another domestic violence offense between now and whenever their case gets resolved. And the intelligence in artificial intelligence is for the statistical model to learn from the data what characteristics of defendants tend to be most predictive in the data itself for domestic violence recidivism risk. How good is AI versus a human judge at being able to apply common sense and reasoning when it comes to something like, well, hang on a second, maybe there's a racial bias here. There's almost no question that the most important concern as we try and use AI to be helpful in solving policy problems is exactly centered around questions of fairness and racial bias. You know, if you think about pretrial release versus jail decisions for people arrested for domestic violence, say, the law right now, for better or for worse, says that the, the jailing versus release decision is supposed to be made on a prediction. And so the question is exactly who makes that prediction, the statistical model or the, or the human. I think it's, it's very revealing that, you know, for 
For 70 years, psychologists have been looking at human beings and coming to the conclusion that given all of the fallibilities of human decision-making, anything would be better than humans. So the people who've been most enthusiastic about statistical models are the ones who are most familiar with the humans. Human decision-making is the ultimate black box. What does a judge do when they're deciding on whether to release or jail a domestic violence case? We have no idea, but maybe one of the starkest examples, in the state of Louisiana, your likelihood of being detained in jail by a judge is notably higher if the previous Sunday, the Louisiana State University football team lost, and your likelihood of being detained by the grouchy judge is even higher still if the judge is an LSU alumnus themselves. That's just so surreal and awful that a football game would cause that much of a potential influence on a judge's decision. This is interesting because I think that what you were just saying, though, is that with a human judge, you're not able to actually understand what went into their decision-making, but they themselves may not be able to understand that. It sounds like machines are interestingly more introspective than humans are. Well, I I think the way that I would say it is um, machines are more uh, at the risk of coining a a new word or abusing the English, English language. I would say that machines are more interrogatable than humans are. There's a large body of research that suggests that we really do not like deliberate thinking. And most of us will do almost anything to not have to actually think deliberately. And so we rely instead on a series of automatic low effort or what psychologists call system one responses to deal with a bunch of situations that we encounter over and over again in our daily lives. We really don't have a very good conscious understanding or access to what system one is doing, what our automatic uh, thinking and responses are, we can see very clearly in the data that the judges are detaining an enormous number of very, very low-risk defendants. People with close to zero risk of skipping court, close to zero risk of reoffending, wind up getting detained because the judges mistakenly conclude that they're high risk. And conversely, we can see in the data as well that there are lots of high-risk defendants that the judges confuse for low-risk people and release them. And it has enormous social consequences because, you know, detaining low-risk people imposes enormous social harm to the the people detained and communities and uh, to the government budget for almost no public safety gain. And conversely, when judges are releasing the people who are actually high risk, it leads to calls for even more detention. So Jens, I mean, in a sense then, it sounds like judges themselves don't even necessarily know why they make a decision. We recognize that the structured data captures only part of reality. What I would say is that algorithms create the potential to improve on judges. Algorithms share the feature of all technologies in the sense that They can be used for good or for ill, depending on the human user. Really, the way to to use AI to solve these policy problems is to no longer think about this as we're trying to replace the human intelligence with the artificial intelligence. 
but we need to help the judges better understand when the algorithm is wrong and when the judge is right and, and vice versa. So the judge knows when to follow the algorithm's recommendations versus override it. Allowing artificial intelligence to make every decision for us means we run the risk of losing what makes us inherently human, emotional, feeling, hopeful, thinking creatures. But it's the ways in which we've gotten lazy, the shorthand that we've developed to stop deliberating, inventing or thinking, that could be helped by and not replaced by AI. In short, more justice, more safety, less guessing. One thing that I've noticed is that we tend to think of AI as either the best thing or the worst thing. It's here to like replace us all or is the best thing ever and it's going to do everything for us. I'm Shervin Kodibande. I'm a senior partner and managing director at Boston Consulting Group and I co-lead our AI business in North America. Shervin strategizes with global corporations and helps them assess and embrace everyday AI applications. It can be a bit of an uphill battle. When it comes to, you know, private sector companies, it's not surprising to you that they invest billions of dollars in building AI capabilities, right? What should be surprising is that very few companies are actually getting meaningful financial or operating impact from their AI investments. But like the massive promise and potential of AI is only realized by, by about 10% of companies. And these 10% in their workforce, the way AI is embedded and integrated is it doesn't displace human or replace human. It's all about human and AI. One company that's gone beyond the AI binary is fashion retailer H&M. H&M started their, their AI journey five, six years ago. And for them, it was about how do we empower our, our workforce? And when you take that mindset rather than replacing human, two things happen. Number one, you have a pretty reasonable ambition. You don't just think about automating everything that cannot be automated. Like you cannot take human out of so many business processes. And number two, you actually build an organization that is happier and more proud and more effective. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of research on AI adoption uh, with MIT and with my colleagues at BCG. And one thing we find is organizations that deploy AI in this way, where human and AI are, are working together as opposed to against each other, actually have happier workforce. So AI isn't disenfranchising the workforce. AI is actually empowering the workforce. You're talking about essentially within companies, there has to be an attitudinal and cultural embracing of AI as a starting point. That's right. But, but what is culture, right? You can't just say, I want to change the culture. Culture is driven by the context of me in my company. So if I am the merchandiser or the guy in charge of pricing or store operations, at H&M or any other company. And then you say, I want you to change and be more appreciative of AI. It's not going to happen. But if you arm me with the tool, but also a way of working that I could interact with AI, I can even challenge it and teach it something. And that kind of continued recursive learning, mutual collaboration is really, really the key. So what H&M did, for example, on, on many of their AI uh, programs is they allowed 
the individual business people, process people, decision people to interact with AI, to understand why AI was suggesting an action, a recommendation. And if they didn't think that was right because of their business judgment or their understanding, they could challenge it. And this is what we refer to as mutual organizational learning, where you're not just building these feedback loops for AI to get better and better and better, but you're also building feedback loops for human and AI to each get better. Sort of like a symbiotic relationship between AI and humans. But what do you say to people then who might might argue, well, listen, Shervin, this sounds great, but it feels like we're delaying the inevitable, which is that eventually companies are going to want to, for cost purposes or for efficiency purposes, move more towards leaning on AI and less towards labor. I mean, that displacement is a real existential threat, I feel, for a lot of Americans. Yeah, I think I think it is a perception, but I disagree. I don't think it's a displacement. I think it's a change in what we do over time. So if labor displacement isn't a risk in your view, what are the risks? I think the risks are we missed the boat because we we think of AI as very binary, like all or nothing. And we we forget the opportunity in the middle ground. I think there's another risk which is more existential. That is, we let AI run its course without correcting it. So over time, there's a risk of AI being more biased and creating all kinds of unintended consequences. There's several examples where algorithms would say, well, there is really no other competitor here, so we could raise the price. It just so happened that many of those places where there wasn't a competitor for that particular retailer were actually you know, disadvantaged communities and, and poorer neighborhoods. AI didn't set out to do that, but there wasn't a governing mechanism with the mindset of, let me see who is going to be impacted by this. Who? If you're taking a view of who, then you're thinking about people, you're thinking about demographics, you're thinking about societies. And, and I think that's, that's very important. Taking the view of who and not what with AI also helps us to see our own human foibles and biases. You might be a bank that is trying to hire financial advisors that are advising bank customers on on their finances, on, on their trading, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So the bias would be, let's go hire candidates that have had similar jobs in other places. They had a bias towards people that are cut of a certain cloth of the same kind. So AI helps us see these kinds of biases too. This is so interesting. I was just thinking, Sherwin, something I, I talk about often is that... Um, I met my husband in LA. We we met through a mutual friend. We happened to be at the same bar at the same time. It was, you know, very kind of old school story. You don't hear very much of very often now. But we always joke when we say, if we were, you know, if we had been using a social app, we wouldn't have swiped, you know, because the profile that we were given wasn't necessarily what we thought we wanted and what we thought we were looking for. So it was sort of like our own biases would have meant that we wouldn't have dated and met. And it's kind of what you're saying. I mean, it's not, you know, we're talking about love matches, you're talking about, you know, recruitment matches, but it kind of is the same 
notion. Exactly. But it's all about a conversation, right? It's about conversation that if, if you and I and a bunch of other people are trying to make a decision, we're going to have a conversation about it. We're going to hear different points of view and we're going to challenge each other. And maybe we change our, some of us will change our perspectives. And it's about having the same kind of conversation with AI. And that's what I mean by the middle ground is that there are places where AI could replace menial human tasks. Great, fantastic. There are things AI could do in terms of, you know, making uh, things more autonomous that is, you know, ad- advantageous to, to, to our daily lives. Fantastic. But there's so many things where AI on its own could have really unintended consequences or humans on their own can have unintended consequences. And when they come together, they can have this dialogue. And this opportunity for recursive ongoing learning is I think is the biggest untapped potential. Because every day there are thousands of experiments that are being done with lots of learning from that that's helpful for AI and helpful for humans. And we and, and the, the companies who are actually capturing that value are those who have effectively put in place these mutual learning loops. You know, whether or not we like it, AI is here. Because that 10% who are getting value are really, really succeeding. And we are living in a competitive world where the gap between the AI winners and losers is increasing. For the uh, private sector, there's an existential imperative to catch up because they're going to be you know, placed out of business. Whether or not we like it, it's happening. Perhaps in some ways, the things we create will eventually overtake us. Human history shows us that our own inventions come to define our behavior, from automobiles to iPhones, the music we love to the meals we eat. Invention and disruption are not separate from our humanity, but intertwined with it. They are mirrors to each other, offering looks at the best versions of ourselves, always cluing us in on where we might head next. Just ask professional poker player Darren Elias. Well, it's kind of like you either fight them or join them. And and if you fight them, you're going to lose. As for the like sanctity of the game or or how it's going to change it, AI will win and show us how to play the best version of the game eventually. But I'm not against that. I I think that's beautiful that that we're able to learn more about maybe how the optimal version of the game should be played. Taking the long view might just be how we win with AI. And it could be that future generations will help us unlock its potential without any Frankenstein baggage attached. Most people that today are in positions of decision-making, public or private, don't know a lot about AI. I think the stakes are increasing for everyone to better understand what AI can and can't do. My wish for the Gen Z and, and beyond is that they realize the equation that human plus AI is more powerful than human alone and AI alone. I do feel like the opportunity is continued innovation in human AI interaction to to continue to build those mutual feedback loops where whatever it is, whether it's a game, whether it's poker, whether it's uh, a business function in an organization, whether it's a major initiative in the public sector, that the human and AI interaction and that power of them together is brought to life.
you've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we examine how the turbulent economy is affecting not only our financial well-being, but our mental health too.